welcome to you all on this lovely, sticky, <laughs> gray, drizzly, stuffy <laughs> day in central Pennsylvania. <clears throat> Great that you got out into the haze and showed up. Uh, so much of our life is just about showing up, showing up for our lives. And so coming to Oan is a good practice in showing up, not necessarily for anyone else, but just for our own, our own lives. So thank you for bringing life to this place by your presence. And happy Interdependent, Interdependence Day. <laughs> I have a hard time saying that. Happy Interdependence Day. It's the perfect a holiday for Buddhists. <laughs> so... During our book study gathering, which was not for book study <clears throat> this past week, but a gathering of those who are buddies and working on koans, and one of our Sangha members had a very, um, very interesting comment, partly based on the koan that we were dealing with, but also, I think, based on many koans and many stories about the relationship between teachers and students. And her comment was, you know, Zen masters are, can be really mean. Remember? Mm -hmm. They can be really mean, cruel, even. Um, rude insulting what's up with that <laughs> you know these are enlightened beings um, why are they why why are they sometimes so mean and cruel well that got me to thinking that there's some truth to that there are many many dharma teachers masters and masters and mistresses <clears throat> who respond to their students in very harsh, unexpected, and surprising ways. For example, well, the one on Thursday, the, the koan that we were working with, the Zen master Mazu picks up an axe, right? <laughs> and calls his student... <laughs> who happened, just happened to run over his legs in, in, the, in the road, uh, he says, the, the monk who ran over my legs, come on up. And he has an axe, and he's ready to, who knows what he's ready to do with it, but he, he does put it down at the end. But that's a pretty dramatic way of treating your students, <laughs> going to behead him. Um, but that's, that's the suggestion. Um, we had another koan in which a student K 
came excitedly to Ambassador and said, I've seen the light. It filled my body and mind, as the master said that when she was awakened, that would, would what happened. Her, her mind and body would be filled with light. And she came running excitedly to the master and says, yes, the, my, my mind was filled with... He said, did the light go up your asshole? Oh, that's pretty crude for a Zen master. A monk once asked Uman, who was also a, a Zen master, what is Buddha? And Uman thought for a moment and answered, a dried shit stick. These are real accounts. I'm not thinking, as they say, I, who would make the, even make this up, right? Joe, a monk, once asked Master Rinzai, what is the great meaning of Buddha's teaching? Rinzai got off his meditation cushion and approached Joe and pushed him off the cushion and threw him on the ground and then disappeared. What behavior <laughs> for a master. <coughs> on his deathbed, one of <clears throat> the Dharma heirs of a great Zen master was greeting his heirs and disciples, saying farewell to them on his deathbed. And one of his disciples said, great master, um, is there anything more I need to know before you pass away? And the master said, well, I'm, I'm generally satisfied with you, but there's one thing I worry about a little bit. And the monk said, well, please tell me so I can take care of that. And the master paused and said, well, the trouble is with you is that you still stink of Zen. This on his deathbed. Very unbecoming. Masters. Well, of course, let's assume that these masters were not just being cruel and rude and crude for no reason, that just they feel, felt like cursing or, <laughs> or attacking or fighting, but that this surprising response perhaps woke up the disciple, the student, in a way that 
no other technique might have worked to be so shocking as, you know, when you're sleepwalking or when you're sleeping and you're in a deep sleep, sometimes you need a loud alarm to wake you up. And so sometimes a teacher will do something really insulting, really unexpected, really hurtful to not just to make you feel bad, but to wake you up, to, to wake, arouse you from your sleep, from your habit energies, from your presuppositions, from your filters, from the way you generally approach the world. Even disciples who are presumably well-versed in Buddhist practice, we still have stuff to learn. We don't get, uh, uh, take everything for granted. Nobody in life, no matter where you are, even, even great masters have to be shaken up because you get contented like a cow. You, know, you think you know it. You think you've reached, reached it. So even Buddha still practiced after his enlightenment. There's, there's no end to waking up again and again. But there are many ways to awaken. Coben, who is our lineage, our root teacher, our lineage holder, our, the teacher for whom we have Oan and the spirit of Oan, did not approach his students and his Sangha in this radical way. In fact, perhaps uh, I, I think you've heard, may have heard this story about Coben, <clears throat> who was asked at a gathering of the Sangha, one of, the, one of his beginning students came up to him at this celebratory party in someone's house and they asked him, well, Coven, can you, can you tell me what Buddhism is about in a nutshell? A couple of sentences. Coven stood there and said, well, excuse me, uh, I, just, I need to use the restroom. I'll be right back. And he went into the restroom, opened a window, climbed out and was never seen at the party again. So this is, this is Coben's way of teaching. Sometimes we call this, sometimes I call this, a withholding teacher. There is a te there's the kind of teacher which I call an imposing teacher, like, did the light go through your asshole? It's not my way. <laughs> um, every teacher, every Dharma teacher has a, a different way. Um, so an imposing teacher gets right in there and you know, shakes you up. 
does things to you that you might find really objectionable. And sometimes it's so objectionable that people leave. I actually have to remember the story of um, another Dharma sister at Chikoji who had a certain, she needed to be taught something about arrogance. And she was ordained and you're given a Dharma name (laughs) at your ordination. And she was expecting something really profound, like I got, you know, luminous earth. (laughs) But instead, she got the name, which meant lunch whistle. (laughs) Lunch whistle. That did not sit well with her. And she left. Sometimes it, there, that is that you're, you're not learning. You're not, you're not learning. Actually, this happened with Ronan, too, because I gave Ronan a name, Ronan, that he reacted to initially. I says, you know, Ronan <laughs> means, you know, um, renegade samurai. And it, it, Ronan has a certain, as a caricature too. I think there's a comic book mm-hmm. person named Ronan, and he was, he was. People are going to hear that name, and gradually, he realized, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes that kind of shaken up uh, mean you can't take it. If someone insults you, if a Zen teacher insults you that way, you regard it as a blow to your ego, and and you will not stand for it. You can't let go. You can't let go of your self-image, of your sense of self. And so uh, you, you might leave. And that's a sign that, okay, you know, you can't let go. You can't let go of your ego. So... Coben really modeled a certain way, not just for Zen teachers to be, but for all of us to be. That is not to have to use power, uh, imposing our will, controlling situations, that we can be a withholding teacher, We can let things be and let things unfold the way they naturally do and not feel that we need to to fix anything or to teach anyone. You know, there's some thought in Zen that you really can't teach anybody. You can learn, but there's nothing to teach. All you can really do is be a certain way. Because I remember seeing a couple of my teachers, my guiding teachers, very early in my Zen life, thinking, I want that. I, that, yeah, that's, I'd like to be able to be that way course we all all are we're just 
kind of get in our own way. And what, what would flow naturally from us uh, is blocked. So Coben was a, he was a, a teacher and a person who was able to let things be. And if something was troublesome, he, w- he withdrew rather than trying to impose himself on people, on the world. This doesn't mean he was passive and powerless because I suspect that that person who never saw him again sort of was standing at the party thinking, waiting and waiting and waiting for Coben to return and maybe then thought, oh, what a, what a ridiculous question that was. Of course, it, who's going to be able to answer that? So Coben allowed the person to discover, instead of shaking him, a trusted that person. Okay, if I let this be, I trust that that person will discover where he maybe have been unskillful or maybe could ask a different question or not ask a question at all. Because all those questions that come to Zen masters are all like that. Like, what's Zen? What's Buddha? What's the Buddha's teaching? You know, it's like, we want, we want it, we want life in a nutshell. And so when we're on, we're at a party, and somebody knows we're a Buddhist, oh, what's Zen? In a nutshell. So I can, I can tell other people at the party that I know what Zen is. You know, we want, we want life in a nutshell. It's, it's a great it's a great to- topic for another Dharma talk. <laughs> so exemplifying this way of being in the world in which we're kind of not dragged around by circumstances, <clears throat> that we can let things be. So most of the time, we are reacting in what what are conventionally called these four F's, and I'm sure you've all heard of them. Fight, flight, freeze, and there's another one that I just discovered. It's fawn, you know these. So we tend to be, dragged around, pushed and pulled by these, re- these reactive responses. So for example, fight, anger, this reaction of, like for example, when somebody disrespects you in a parking lot <laughs> and will refuse to listen, to your reason for not having to pay the parking meter, uh, the immediate reaction right, is mm-hmm. turning red, seeing red, mm-hmm. reaction. Fight, I'm insulted. Mm. Huh. No, 
And that you held on to that for mm -hmm. couldn't let go. Pushed around, dragged around by by that the power of anger. Fight. And then flight. So you're at a party or gathering with and you feel uncomfortable with strange strangers. So you enter the room and oh my god, there are all these strangers. I'm out of here. You know. It's a very simple example of flight, but I think you have the sense of I I can't meet this situation. Um and I I don't think I'm suspecting that Coben's disappearance out the window was not because he was afraid, but because he was expressing, he was hoping to make this a teaching moment. So he wasn't running from the situation, but he was present enough to know what this person needed and was acting in a way that made that possible if he just left that person alone waiting for him. So you know what that flight situation feels like. Uh, you see a person that you don't get along with very well or talks too much and you're moving, you know, you're running in the opposite direction. You're running, you're running away again. A reactive, reactive, um, we could say mindless way of responding. And then freeze. What is Zen? <laughs> Someone in authority asks you a challenging question. Everything freezes up, right? And you say, I'm, I'm, I can't speak. I'm dumbfounded. And, and you can feel that. You can feel that in your body when you just freeze up. And then fawning is a, a way of kind of what placating Sometimes we, we call this uh, people-pleasing, you know, where you're facing a situation and, you know, requires some difficult responses and um, challenge. And instead of dealing with that situation, you uh, surrender to whatever the other person wants. <laughs> you know, just, okay, I just want total harmony here and... I don't want to get into conflict. And so whatever you say, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, so all of these are react, reactive, immediate responses that with, which take us out of the immediacy of our experience. Unable or unwilling to meet circumstances as they present themselves. So it's a way of avoiding the present moment. 
avoiding, perhaps responding, not reacting, but responding in a different way than, than the typical ways in which we do respond. Um, I was thinking about what Coben might suggest as a fifth F, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. That took me a while, but I came up with one. Can you think of one? Are you freezing? (laughs) So the one I came up with was flow. Pretty good. And that's become a very popular, you know, I forget, I mean, the guy whose name, who wrote the book on this, has an unpronounceable last name. So I suggest that you go online. And, <laughs> and if you want to take a look at this book, you, you should. But it's something that we can all quite clearly understand that when we're confronting or meeting a set of circumstances, instead of resisting, fleeing, tensing up, or just being of surrendering, we can get a sense of what the drift is, what What's required of me right now? Um, Not my typical reactive modes, but what, what is required of me? No more, no less. Just what is required right now? And actually, this moment of awareness of what's going on here and what am, what am, what am I needed? How, how am I needing to respond? That moment of awareness is a letting go. It's an immediate letting go and makes it possible then for you to flow. Without the moment of awareness, like, I feel angry. There, Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. There is anger in me. There is anger in me. There is fear in me. That moment when you're not captured by fear, by we're not reacting immediately, that moment, that nanosecond of, I'm afraid, I'm angry, that is an, an immediate moment of letting go. And then you can actually see clearly, more clear, clear, more clearly what needs to be done. This is our practice. This moment of awareness, this nanosecond, this precious nanosecond of awareness. Oh, what's going on with me? What, what am I feeling? 
before reactivity. Okay, now maybe I can see a little more clearly. And because I can see clearly, I can see how, how things are going. And I can flow with them. <laughs> I can flow with them instead of imposing, imposing either fear, anger, free, uh, ice, <laughs> or, or fawning. I can, I can go with it. Alan Watts calls this the difference between sailing and rowing. Rowing, <clears throat> sailing is using the wind. It's what we call effortless effort. And, you know, we admire this. I remember looking at, uh, watching the Olympics, for instance, and watching the skiers go down the hill, or the ice skaters, or anyone who is really good at their, at their craft. Like, it's so natural. I can do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Put me on a pair of skis. Oh, it's so natural. I, I could do that. That's how this effortless effort feels when you're watching somebody do something which is, seems so natural that, yeah, you, you could do it. Anyone could do it. There is a, a Taoist term for this, which I'm very fond of, <clears throat> in the Chinese. Bless you. It's Wu Wei. W-E-I W-U. No, W-U W-E-I. Wu Wei. No forcing. No forcing. Flowing. And anyone studying martial arts or Tai Chi uh, or dance uh, knows about no forcing. Just someone comes at you in judo, you sense the drift of their energy and you just let it go by you. You don't resist. There's no fighting. It's being aware, being incredibly aware of how this energy is flowing and going with it. And then it just dissipates on its own. The mind of Wu Wei, it is said, flows like water, reflects like a mirror, and responds like an echo. Flows like water, the mind. Flows like water, reflects like a mirror, reflects what is, doesn't impose. A mirror doesn't impose, although sometimes when I look in the mirror, I wish it would impose <laughs> another image on me. <laughs> Maybe when I was 20, I don't know. But it doesn't impose, it just reflects. And it 
responds like an echo, like Coben responded. He didn't say anything. He just allowed that question to reverberate in the questioner's mind. Okay, this is really hard to have a mind like this. This is what we're practicing. This kind of mind that lets things be and just flows along with with it. Um, You can tell when this mind isn't operating because things don't seem natural. And you can feel this inside of yourself. For very, sim- very simply, you're smiling when you don't really want to smile. It's unnatural, but you know, you smile because it's expected. And when somebody else smiles, like I see, you know, some people on on the news, you know, they come on and they, or the politicians, they're just always smiling. It looks terrible. It's, it's, and we, we sense it. This isn't a real smile. This isn't a smile that's flowing with the situation. And it's kind of insulting. It's, it's, it's discomforting. Um, So we can tell when something isn't natural, and very much when it is. When we feel comfortable with the person, because they're not always putting on some kind of an unnatural performance. When When they're flowing with us, they're not trying to control us. But, you know, we're moving together. So I wanted to end with a couple of... um, personal experiences. Um, A number of years ago when I was still teaching at Penn State, I used to have students come out to my house at the time, not here, but I used to live in another place in the woods, sky top, around sky top. And one of the courses that I taught was a course in alternative lifestyles. Organic gardening, solar power, um, um, sustainable, you know, um, living, uh, homeschooling, et cetera, et cetera. And at the time, I, we had, I had a cook stove and we heated by wood and wood stoves. And my students came out and I said, well, let's, let's practice splitting wood. And we did some of that. Sherry, I guess Sherry was here when we were doing that. And there were some big, hefty guys in my class. And so I gave them the axe and the maul and the um, splitter. And they started hacking away at the wood. This is imposition of one's will. They could not split the wood. 
they were they they wore themselves out trying to split this wood. Lots of marks in the wood, but nothing 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 was split. So I said, uh, give me give me them all. <laughs> and they all started chuckling, you know, because I'm a little a little woman and um, I said, I'll show you how to split this. And they all started laughing. Um, but I knew, I knew that there was a grain, a, a, a fissure in the, in the wood that you could see if you paid attention. And if you hit it there, no problem. The thing would just fall apart. Well, I can't tell you, they were, I mean, they froze, <laughs> they froze, they were dumbstruck. Because I picked up the mall, no problem, right there, right there where the, where the crack was. A minor crack, but it was just enough to indicate that this is where the, the thing needed to be split, you probably, some of us have a practice of splitting wood. <clears throat> so again, going with the grain, going with paying attention to where the openings are, paying attention to where, just where you need to enter and just how. Not pounding away at it, but just right there. Don't have to do a lot of work. It's incredibly efficient. Coben knew, easy, just disappear. What, what could be better? What could be a better teaching than that, okay? So it's effortless. Once you pay attention, then be, things become effortless. So, okay, my own struggle with this began during a, a sashin at another dharma center <clears throat> and at the end of the sashin, the retreat, uh, the teacher wanted to reward those who, uh, who participated in the retreat, wanted to or, uh, reward them with a little bag of treats, little bag of chocolates, really, and assigned me to make these little treat bags for, um, for the Sangha. And, okay, you know, I, I was a go, go, okay with that, even though I had to sort of go <clears throat> into a separate location and was away from the rest of the group. And he presented me with a, a big box of Hershey's Kisses. <laughs> and I was to put some of these kisses into these little bags. And as many of you may have experienced, some packaging is really challenging. Particularly when it's pla plastic, sealed plastic packaging. This was sort of my confrontation with 
the piece of wood. <laughs> and I could not figure out how to open this darn box of Hershey's Kisses. Looking everywhere, <laughs> trying to figure out how to open this thing. And then I was getting more and more impatient and then just starting to rip, rip, rip into it. <laughs> and my nails were, some of my nails were broken. Little pieces of plastic were all over the place. I did not make any more headway into that box of kisses than I started with. And so finally, I mean, I was really frustrated. I was trying to get my fingers, you know, through a, through a crack that I'd made and pull the plastic off. No, that, that didn't work. So I just sat, I just sat there um, quite angry, for, quite frustrated, and distressed with myself that I, I couldn't. And then I happened to look down at the, at the box of kisses, and right at the edge, guess what it said? Hmm. Peel here. Peel here. So much of our life is just about that. Noticing. Peel here. And there's life flows. But you gotta notice. Thank you.